James chapter 5 is where we're going to be this morning, so take your Bibles and open there with me. James chapter 5, verses 13 through 18, which we'll read in just a few moments. I have a brother in ministry who is my actual brother, who's a brother in ministry across the country, and uh, we pick up the phone and call each other, oh, once a week, sometimes once a day. We've got a line open. I thank God for my brother Drew. There are certain triggers that might mean we pick the phone up. These are not scheduled calls. We just pick the phone up. Sometimes the trigger is I got in my car and started going home. I think I'm going to give him a ring. One trigger would be when something bad happens, we might call each other. Another trigger might be when something good happens, we might call one another. In fact, if I found out something about my brother that was notably sad or exciting and he hadn't told me, I would be dumbfounded, not because he owes it to me to talk to me about it, but because it's just the kind of thing that we talk about. It's just natural. We have a line open. We talk. Almost anything can trigger a call. Well, James has addressed a number of subjects in his letter and most recently manifestations of pride, several in slander and abuse of wealth and planning without reference to God. And now he turns to the subject of prayer, something that isn't natural because we are not so naturally humble, but something you probably want to grow in and something by God's grace we can grow in with a little help from God's spirit today through God's words through James. It's normal at the end of a New Testament letter for the subject to turn to prayer and now James turns to prayer and he tells us to pray. It's almost like Paul's words, pray without ceasing. James though tells us how. And as almost anything can trigger a call to a loved one, it's true that almost anything when our hearts are in the right place can trigger prayer to God. So let's read together James 5, 13 through 18. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power in its working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Basketball was not good that night. That's what my daughter said yesterday as she was drawing a flower and contemplating game seven of the NBA finals about a week and a half ago now. Still on her mind, it's still on my mind. It was a great season if you track with basketball, at least if you track with Golden State Warriors basketball. And won hard-won records, it was a fun season, hard-won season, and in game seven of the finals in the last minute, The very last minute and a half of the game, the series was tied and the score was tied and they got destroyed. 
And that's kind of how I feel like today coming to this passage. James has been a wonderful book and a fun book. And it's been a hard book at times. And here we are nearing the end and James does this to me. And like LeBron James, James is whacking the ball right out of my hand. And so I've redeemed the warrior's loss for a sermon illustration this morning. James says some hard things here and I cannot actually promise that I will resolve them all in your minds, but I will do my best with God's help. But I can promise you that the main things that James is getting across will be abundantly clear and should already be abundantly clear to us. James is not writing to mess with us or to trick us. He's writing to pastor us. He writes concerning the matter, the straightforward matter, the simple matter, the profound matter of prayer. Every verse here has a reference to prayer. One of our most sacred duties and at the same time, one of our most spectacular privileges. Let it not be missed. Prayer, James says, is for all of God's people in all of the circumstances in which they find themselves. Because God is for all of God's people in all of life's circumstances in which we find ourselves. Our time will be divided with two questions. When should we pray? And how do we know that God hears our prayers? We'll spend most of our time on that first one. When should we pray? Verses 13 to 16. Well, most of us have a pretty good answer to that question. For me, at least, when there's food in front of me that I would like to be eating, I pray before I eat my food or at my children's bedside or when I'm within a, in a room here with you on a Sunday morning. Well, by God's grace, verses 13 through 16 will teach us at least four ways, uh, occasions in which we ought to pray. Triggers for prayer, we might say. And as we listen to these answers, ponder your own soul's hunger for God. Sometimes we lose touch with a loved one over the years. And it's not because we don't have their number and it's not because we aren't friends on Facebook. It's because we haven't talked for a while. And, um, and we might say to ourselves, ah, I gotta get better at calling so-and-so. But even then, we've sort of missed what the heart of the thing is about. For the call is about the relationship. Better to say, I need to get closer with so-and-so. I need to pick up the phone. And maybe it's that way with you and the Lord in prayer. And I would just encourage you to decide as you're listening to God's word this morning for whatever else of curiosity that you will hear Hear this as God speaking to you about his desire and instruction for you to speak with him. The Lord gives us this passage because he wants to hear from you and he wants you to know when he would love to hear from you. So let's listen to James. When should we pray? Four triggers for prayer, if you will. First, we should pray when we're troubled. Pray when we're troubled. Verse 13, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. He'll get the sickness later, but here he's talking about the general course of suffering and trouble in the world. When we see one another, we often ask, how are you doing? And it's a pleasantry, and I'll often say, doing great. And I might not have any idea how I'm doing that particular day, and in the big picture of things, I really am doing great. But in the day-to-day, we don't always have great days. Isn't that true? 
we have plenty of bad days. Are you having a bad day? Are you having a bad week? Are you having a bad year? What trouble has come upon you? A big kind, a little kind, the money kind, the marriage kind, the parenting kind, the car or house kind of trouble. These are all real troubles that we have in this world. There might be a number of things you're thinking of doing about it. If you have the money kind of trouble, you might be contemplating how to pay off debt or what other job you should get or how more carefully to save. If it's the marriage kind of trouble, you may be contemplating your own part in the difficulty, how you can better love your spouse. If it's the house kind of trouble, you may be pondering some kind of fix or gear replacement. But there's something that is more important than anything that you might think of concretely to do. And that is when you're having trouble in this life to pray, to pray. It's more important than all of those things because the Lord is more important than all of those things. And he's in our trouble. And what are we to pray for? James says, let him pray. We almost might wish he said a little bit more, like here's how you can pray. But if we back up and were to read through the letter a few times, we might have some obvious answers to the question of what James would have us pray for. Turn with me to chapter one. These will be some familiar verses. And this will be instructive for us on how to pray on a hard day. Verses two through four, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So how might we pray in light of those verses? It's obvious enough. We can pray for joy in our trial, for help to see that God gathers up all of our trouble and life if we belong to him and converts it into fuel for his good purposes in your life. And we can pray that our trial would test our faith and that that testing would produce steadfastness. And we can pray that we will say one day that whatever we have lost in trial, that we can say we've actually lost nothing for we're complete through it. Take a look at verse five. Paul turns to the subject of wisdom. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea. It's driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in his ways. So we can pray for wisdom. When we're in trouble and having difficulty, we should ask God for wisdom. And that's what we can pray for. And he tells us how with confidence that the Lord gives generously wisdom to those who know that he will. We can pray with one mind and not two. Another hint as to the manner of prayer comes in chapter four. Turn there with me. Chapter four, verse 13. You'll remember these words from a few weeks ago. Come now you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. 
Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live or do this or that. So when this or that that we expected to happen is not what we anticipated, but what was according to God's will, we can turn to this verse. And on a hard day, we can acknowledge that the Lord's will is what comes to our life. And so we pray with full submission to God in every moment that we live, that every moment is his. Well, some of our trouble happens to us and some of our trouble is surely self-inflicted. All of it is hard. All of it is a reason to pray to God. If your car breaks down, pray. If you lost a big investment this past week, pray. If you have a difficult spouse, pray. If you have a wayward and difficult child, pray. Some of this is inflicted upon us by other people cruelly, our trouble is. So pray, as James warned us, for humility not to convert our loss into envy or into slander or into cruelty against others. Surely the great danger in not praying in trial is that if you don't talk to God, you will talk to yourself and that is not better. So you're having a bad day, having a bad year, pray, pray. James goes on, second half of verse 13. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. So our second trigger, when we're cheerful, that's when we should pray. And what's this singing praise? That's exactly what it is. Singing praise is a form of prayer. All kinds of reasons we might be cheerful. It doesn't have to mean cheerful from cheery circumstances. It's possible to be cheerful because you are tasting the deep spiritual work of God in your heart through circumstances which actually are not altogether cheerful. And some of you even today are on particularly difficult times and yet beautifully and because of God's grace, your heart is full and you can praise God. And yet there are many ordinary reasons to be cheerful as well. Reasons owing to God. The sun came up this morning. You had a breakfast and a relaxing morning, depending on how early you got up. You've been given a spouse if the Lord has been kind to you in that way. You've been given money for the gas that it took you to get here this morning and to drive to work tomorrow. And the doctors have a good plan for you for what's coming. All these things are ordinary ways in which God cares for us. And pretty ordinary ways as well in which we could be lulled to sleep and not thinking on the Lord. And isn't it true that when we are cheerful that this is a great danger Because this is the moment at which we are most easily vulnerable to forget the Lord and forget our need for him. So if you're cheerful, if you're happy, if you're having a good day, give praise to the Lord for it. I suppose not all children are singers, but my children are singers. And on some days I'll be doing my thing, Christy will be doing her thing, and the kids are spread out around the place. One's doing a puzzle, the other one homework. The other one playing make-believe with some puppets. And they're all singing. All of them. I promise you there are days when the kids are all crying. Usually not at the same time. But sometimes they are all singing. And they sing when there's no strife between them. And they sing when there's no strife between us. And they sing when their bodies are well and not sick. 
We sing when our hearts are full and free from the song-stopping grip of sin. Our hearts are an instrument and they make a beautiful sound when they are not stopped up. And I love to hear my children singing. And the Lord loves to hear his children sing. So when your heart is happy, sing to him. And notice, it's not even a suggestion. It's a command. God says, sing to me if I've cheered your heart. So here's a practical suggestion. Every Monday morning, Drew Hodge, our chief musician and liturgist, our music minister, posts a blog to the DSC Music blog. If you go to the website, you'll find it. And he provides links to audio, chord charts if you play music, and to lyrics for all the songs that we sang on that Sunday. Why don't you go there, rummage through a few weeks, print off a bunch of songs. Uh, Stick one in a plastic sleeve and stick it in the shower. I don't know how much time you spend in the shower. Like a half an hour like me, you can get through that song about 50 times. (laughs) If you're quick, you can still get through it a few times. And uh, and then you get the noise in the shower too, so you, you sort of mute your voice if you're a little nervous about how you sing. But sing to the Lord, find some ways to start writing songs under your mind and heart, and they'll follow you. They'll follow you in the car. Um, I find that we can sing here, but if I get it out on paper and I drag it around with me, the song will stay with me. So I'd encourage you to invest in learning, memorizing, and keeping some good songs with you. Remind yourself with these songs that, as James said, every good and perfect gift is from God above. He gives us every good thing. And if that isn't enough, he actually promises to take away every sad thing For of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, as James said. We will belong to God forever and it will only get better. Here's another way to put it. By calling us to pray to God in the bad and in the good, James is helping us to see all of life under the providential hand and care of God. So when we suffer, we know that we need the Lord. And when we're cheerful, we know who made it that way. Here's a third trigger for prayer to God. We pray when we're sick. Pray when we're sick. Verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And let the prayer and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. Now as the preacher, I'll be honest and say that I wish that James had just written what he'd written already. Is anyone sick? Let him pray. That would have been very much easier. But that's not what he gave us. He doesn't say let him pray. He says call on the elders to pray, which isn't that difficult, but then to anoint him with oil. And he says the prayer of faith will heal him. And he doesn't say sometimes. He says it will heal him. There is no qualification here. Some of you have a favorite Bible verse. John 3.16 might be a favorite Bible verse. 1 Peter, 2 Peter 3.16 is my favorite Bible verse. It reads this way. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, speaking of Paul's letters. And surely we can say that of the end of James's letter as well. And we can take Peter's warning as well. Some things in the letters are hard to understand which, are, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Which means sometimes the things in the Bible that are less clear 
And the Bible is even saying that some things in the Bible are less clear. Sometimes those things which are less clear are taken advantage of those, uh, taken advantage of by those who knowingly or unknowingly would manipulate you or I. And there is a danger in expecting God to always heal. And there is also a danger in expecting that God would never heal. And so we proceed looking to God's word with care and with caution and humility. Let's talk about three things. Let's talk about elders, then we'll talk about oil, then we'll talk about this prayer of faith. The elders. This meaning is straightforward, but maybe its implication would present you with a bit of a challenge. This one is one of our most treasured and precious jobs in our care for the flock as, as elders here. Elders, if you are new to the Bible, are the spiritual leaders who give oversight to the flock of God. Sometimes they're called pastors here at Desert Springs Church. We have eight of them. Some of them are paid and work full time. Some of them are uh, laymen who have jobs uh, in and throughout the community, but lead our church with us. One of our main jobs is preaching and teaching like what I'm doing now. And one of our main jobs is prayer, which includes prayer for the sick. Now there's a danger when it comes to leadership in the church Uh, that folks have fallen into of making entirely too much of the spiritual leaders that God has put over us. In the Catholic faith, uh, the priest is entirely elevated too high and there are other characters within the Catholic faith that are entirely too high and way too much spiritual authority is invested, invested in them. On the other hand, it's possible not to make enough of the spiritual leaders that God has put over us. Elders. We are not mediators for you between you and God, but God has assigned to us a job to care for you. You, even though we are called, the elders are called here to pray for the sick, you actually have a direct line in to God. So don't substitute the role of the elders for the sick here for your own prayer. Tim Keller says it so well. The only person who would wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is a child. And we have that kind of access. You do not need a human, merely human priest. You have a great high priest in Christ. And yet, and yet, there is a place for calling on the shepherds, the elders of a church, to pray for you in certain times. Notice that the sick to be prayed over are the sick from among the flock, which means that for you, you need to make sure that you're a part of this flock. In 2016, there's a thing called church attendance. There is no thing called church attendance in the first century. That would be like saying Hunter family attendance. No. There's being a part of the Hunter family and then not. And if you're here and if you're embedded within this local flock, make sure that we know that you are all in and join in membership. And so if there isn't a reason why you're a member and you're not a member, I just encourage you to find a pastor and say, let's get this done. And we'll get you into the next membership class and we'll put you through the process and we'll join you to the body in membership. James's instructions are for those who are part of the community of faith and under the care of elders. Now the kind of sickness James is talking about is pretty serious, it seems to me. The elders have come to them. The word he uses has to do with physical weakness and sickness. 
It can be used to refer to mental or spiritual weakness, and some will use that to sort of, I don't know, get the, take the teeth out of the passage. If you pray for spiritual health and spiritual healing, that's easier to believe than physical healing. I'm not sure that stacks up. As far as we can tell, James is speaking about someone who is on their back in their home, unable to get up from physical sickness. And so please do not call the elders for a common cold or an itch that you can't scratch. But by all means, by all means, please call on the elders if you are very sick in a way that will change your life or in a way that could potentially threaten your life and will come. Now perhaps there are some barriers in your mind to doing this. Maybe you feel like you're imposing and you feel bad. But consider that this is actually a command to you from God. This is one way that you trust God and consider that it's actually our job and our assignment to pray for you. Or maybe in times past you've been overly preoccupied with prayer for things in this life and health and you've taken your cue from the Apostle Paul who actually not once prays for the changes of circumstances in his readers and you'd be right to take your cue and accent in your prayers spiritual matters. But to you, I say, read James. He calls a person to call on the elders to pray for them for physical healing. So don't feel bad about wanting to be healed or asking for prayer to be healed. That's elders. Now let's talk about oil. What does it mean that the elders are to anoint the person with oil? We should want to know because we're asked to call elders to do this. And we do it. There are a variety of takes on this. I think there's a good and easy answer. The Catholic faith has made much of this in what may be called holy unction, last rites, and they believe that the oil is a vehicle for the grace of God to a person to remove any remaining sin before death. And this view evolved over centuries, starting with the local bishop of an area consecrating the oil and then the oil taken to the person and later with the establishment of the Roman priesthood, the priest was the one who had to administer the oil. And later it was used at the very last moment of life as a way of dealing with sin on somebody's way into passing into the presence of the Lord. And to quote one of my favorite commentators, with all the love in the world, and I mean that somewhat sarcastically and also genuinely in compassion for those who believe this kind of thing, What can we say but this has nothing to do with what James is talking about? James ties the removal of sickness unto life, not the removal of sin unto death. So when you lose the good news of the cross, you will end up looking for it in all kinds of things like oil. I call this the magical view. The oil is seen as a kind of potion. Too much spiritual meaning is invested in the physical object. Then there's the merely medicinal view. This one's better, but I don't think it's accurate. Oil was a kind of medicine in the first century for all kinds of ailments. The good Samaritan takes care of the hurt person with wine and with oil. And of course, the Lord uses natural means to help and heal us. Paul advised Timothy to take a little wine. Luke, the gospel writer, was a physician. But why must the elders bring the oil? Shall I have a medicine cabinet in my office as a pastor? Is it our job to administer these kinds of things with a spiritual 
touch. As one author put it, shall we turn the office into a massage parlor with special oils? I don't think so. There's a medical connotation, but this is not merely medical. Better to see the oil as a physical symbol of a spiritual reality. Think of this. Jesus didn't have to touch people to heal them. And he put his spit in the mouth of a mute man to communicate what he was doing and giving him voice. Or think about baptism or the Lord's Supper, a physical symbol that represents something that's happening spiritually. Or even if you're somewhat new to the Bible and these kinds of symbols, we have them in our everyday life. You think of a groundbreaking ceremony representing all the meaning associated with an establishment of a building. Or when it's opening, the ribbon cutting ceremony. The oil is functioning in a similar way in this case. I think a simple visual Consider that all throughout the Old Testament, we don't ever see anointing in connection with healing. But many times, we actually see anointing in connection with setting a person apart for God. Think of Exodus 28, for example, where he says of Aaron and his sons, shall anoint them and ordain them and consecrate them that they may serve me as priests. This is all over the Old Testament. Someone is anointed and consecrated, set apart for service or devoted to God. And this one actually has a really clear ring of biblical truth to it for me. It makes wonderful sense. So in one sense, the oil, the oil means a lot less than we might want it to mean. It's not magical. But on the other hand, it means a lot more than we've expected. And that's a good thing for us. For it's better by a thousand to be set apart to God in prayer by elders than it is to be healed of all of our diseases through a kind of potion. So that's a bit on elders and then oil and now the prayer of faith. They're getting increasingly difficult. James makes a startling promise in 15. The prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And usually when I read the Bible, I like to say, I believe that. And sometimes I'm not sure what it means, but I believe that. And that's true here. The willfully or unknowingly ignorant will twist this passage to teach a number of things denied outright by the rest of the Bible. For example, that a person will be healed if they have enough faith so that when God doesn't heal them, it is because they did not have faith. But this person, this passage isn't talking about the person's faith, note, but the elder's faith in prayer of faith. And as it is, there are many circumstances of the Lord not healing someone, even with great faith. You think of Paul in 2 Corinthians 12 with a thorn in the flesh. He prayed three times for the Lord to take it away. And the Lord answered no. And it was to teach him something and not because he didn't have faith. And surely James expected every Christian to die unless Christ came back and to die in faith. So what then are we to make of this promise? Well, there are answers out there. Some say that James is speaking of only spiritual weakness, spiritual sickness. The words here for sickness, for healing, are used for spiritual things, but this just doesn't seem like a natural reading to me. Seems like getting off a little too easy. Some say it's a healing that's unique to the apostolic age. There were a lot of interesting things going on in the first century tied to the apostles' work. But in this particular case, James assigns this job to the elders, which have an ongoing ministry down the ages. 
Some say this kind of healing requires a special gift of healing, which the New Testament speaks of. And yet, why would he assume that every eldership and every local church would have resident that gift? Which leaves us with what option? Well, I think Doug Moo just puts it best, and I'll just say it's mildly satisfying. But this is satisfying enough for me. He says, what can we say? We can say this much. The faith exercised in prayer is a faith in God who sovereignly accomplishes his will. When we pray, our faith recognizes, explicitly or implicitly, the overruling providential purposes of God. We may at times be given insight into that will, enabling us to pray with absolute confidence in God's plan, to answer as we ask a prayer in faith. But surely these cases, the kind James is talking about, are rare, more rare even than our subjective emotional desires would lead us to suspect. A prayer for healing then must usually be qualified by a recognition that God's will in the matter is supreme. And it is clear in the New Testament that God does not always will to heal the believer. The tangle of words a bit, but I think that makes the most sense out of this. In other words, when it is really God's will, the elders will really believe in faith and God will really, really heal. And as one author put it, that's kind of having our cake and eating it too. And I'm okay with that. Like I said, we come before these things with humility. Ultimately, we're saying with Jesus as he did in Gethsemane, Father, is there any other way? And we can pray that. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Praise the Lord for every answer he gives. Well, here's what is clear. First, the Lord can and does heal. That's clear. When someone is healed, whether instantly or over time or by ordinary means or by a miracle in a moment, and we pray for people and anoint them with oil and then send them out the door to their doctor, God is in all of it. It is not the oil that's doing it. It is not the prayer that's doing it. It is the Lord who raises up. Second, the Lord has prescribed for us this pattern by which he intends to heal in response to our petitions. This is the way apparently that God likes to do it. It is a particular way that he's prescribed by which he helps us to see him in his healing of our bodies. And so I urge you to reach out to the elders when you are in this kind of dire sickness and we'll pray for you. And if it seems hard to believe, I promise you this, it won't be hard to believe that God has healed people when we meet the Lord. And I suspect on the other side of eternity, we will find out all kinds of very modest and not widely known ways in which the Lord answered prayers of elders and of the people of God for others in healing people on account of their prayers. Recently had someone ask me to pray for something and I did and I said, how'd it go? Oh, it went okay. (laughs) It was almost like the prayer wasn't necessary. It ended up working out. (laughs) So when you pray, expect that God can work and praise him and thank him when he answers according to your prayers because it didn't have to go the way that it went. I had another brother this week texting me uh, before and after three different life 
really deciding career determining exams. I got one before the first one and then a sort of a, oh gosh, a sweating text before the second one and then a, it's going great before the third one and then praise the Lord, I'm good after the third one. And I praise the Lord, praise the Lord with him and I prayed with him. We should be praying and asking God for help and others to help us. So what is the practical application for you this morning? Very simple. If you're sick, call the elders to pray and to anoint you with oil. Notice that the initiative is on the person who's sick. The elders may initiate, but it is actually not assigned to us to go find you. It's on you, and it's a pretty good system, isn't it? We're available. You let us know when you need help. And this is important to us that you know how to reach us. Even in the last few months, we spent a good part of a meeting talking about the various ways we pray for people and how you can get to us. Let me tick them off. A communication card. You've got one in your bulletin. You can let us know how we can pray for you in there. Email on the website. After Sunday service is down front. We have leaders. We also have pastors. After a Lord's Supper service, impromptu, but we also will coordinate to pray with people in particular crisis in another room with several elders who are available. Sometimes after a service in an office, we'll coordinate that ahead of time. In one of our meetings on a Tuesday morning, sometimes we will have a brother or a sister in. And we can visit you during the week where you're at, if you're bedridden. And we can visit you in the hospital if you're hospitalized. This is part of why God gave you elders, and it's part of why he has given us the job. So if anyone is sick, let the elders let him call on the elders and let them pray and anoint him with oil. One more trigger, and it's closely related. When should we pray? When we're in sin. Verse 15, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. And so here we go again. Sickness on our backs, though, is it not? as we're facing heaven, a great position for thinking about the shortness of life, the longness of eternity, and the seriousness of sin. I know that it is a strange thing in our modern day to speak about sin and sickness in connection with one another, but however much we may understand about sickness and how it works in our present day, we don't understand the first thing about sickness if we don't understand the first thing about human beings. And that is that they were made in God's image and they were not made to get sick. Sickness entered the world first because sin entered the world before it. And it is a part of God's curse. And the horror of sickness is a reminder of the horror of sin. And the horror that puts us in the bed looking up at the sky is a reminder of the horror of sin that puts us in the ground in due time if Christ does not come. And so it is no surprise that when someone is sick that they should be particularly open to confessing sin, that they would feel the guilt and the shame for sin that they've indulged. And so there's a connection between sin and sickness generally that the heart picks up on, but there's also a specific connection. Some sin is directly caused by, some sickness is directly caused by sin. Drinking way too much will make you sick. Eating way too much will make you sick. Gluttony. A sickness can follow from sin. But some sickness is actually directly caused by God because of sin. 
where God loves you too much to let you keep running and he tranquilizes you to put you down and force you to deal with him as though face to face, stops you in your tracks. And that appears to be what James is talking about here. Certainly this is not the case for all sicknesses. We've got to say that. It wasn't the case for the man James had in mind. He says if he has sinned, wasn't the case for Job, whom James has talked about, only a text before. And it wasn't the case for the boy born blind that Jesus spoke of when Jesus was asked, who sinned, his mom or his dad? Jesus said he didn't sin. No one sinned. He was born this way for the glory of God. But sometimes it is this way. 1 Corinthians 11, classic passage. For anyone who eats and drinks of the Lord's Supper without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. And that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Apparently, some in the Corinthian church were weak and ill because of their cavalier approach to the Lord's Supper. And some actually died because of it. That's plain from God's word. Tim Keller says that prayer, listen to this, is like waking up from a nightmare to reality. We laugh at what we took seriously inside the dream and realize that all is well. But of course, prayer can have the opposite effect. It can puncture our illusions and show us just how much spiritual danger we're actually in. And prayer when you're sick can be that way. So when you're sick, look at your life. If your sickness is because of hidden sin, you will probably know it. You will feel like God is saying, I see you. You will feel caught. Confess the sin. And if you confess sin, then you will be healed for whatever the Lord has brought upon you if it's discipline, for its purpose is complete. But if he doesn't heal you and you've still confessed your sins, that's good too. It's not wasted. And so when you're with somebody who is sick, and when their conscience is heavy and they're confessing sin and they're troubled, it may be tempt- tempting to try to comfort them by taking their mind off sin and articulating that it is not always the case that sickness is owing to sin, and that's true enough. But don't interrupt a really, really important moment where they are confronted with the shortness of life and their own frailty and their own sin and need, frankly, to deal with God and for you to help them confess their sins. In fact, it says confess sins to one another, so let them confess their sins to you. Sin may be the cause of sickness. Sin is always a cause for reflecting on and confessing our sins. So we know when we should pray. When we're troubled, when we're cheerful, when we're sick, and when we're in sin. But why then don't we pray? Why don't we pray? We really need James's encouragement. James has given us a paragraph on this. He's not saying, don't forget to pray, but you guys are doing great. No, he says, if you're troubled, if you're sick, if you're cheerful, pray. One reason might be that we don't know how to pray, and that's fair, and we might be able to afford an example of prayer done well. One reason might be that we don't think the Lord intends to do anything about our prayers. And one reason might be that we don't think God actually hears our prayers in the first place. And that's probably the case for James's readers. They're sick, they're going through trials, they may not feel like God's hand is on them, like God is watching over them. God listens to some people, but not to me. And so James blows that up by looking to Elijah, verse 16. Look with me there. 
The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. So how do we know God hears? Verses 16 through 18, look at Elijah. But Elijah was a prophet, you say, immortalized in the pages of the Old Testament. Elijah was a man who called down fire. Elijah was a man who appeared with Moses and with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. That's what you say. But James says, verse 17, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. With a nature like ours. In other words, you troubled, cheerful, sick, and sinful. Look at Elijah and how God heard his prayers. He was a man, but he was no equal with God. He was still a man with a nature like ours. Yes, he was courageous. Yes, he was strong, and God did mighty things through him. But Elijah knew great weakness, and he knew loneliness, and he knew distress. 1 Kings 19, we find him under a juniper tree on the run where he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take my life. One of these moments of complete despair in the Old Testament. Elijah, not so much unlike us, and you may have been right there. And yet Elijah, it says, prayed fervently that it might not rain. For three years, six months, it didn't rain. And then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain. He prayed fervently, which means he meant what he prayed. He prayed what he meant all the way down. Not a formality, but a fervent prayer. And he may have prayed out of habit, we don't know, but we know that he prayed out of great heart. And he prayed according to God's will. And this is going to shed a little bit of light on how God answers prayers that we've explored a bit. How do we know he prayed according to God's will? How did he know God's will? We read his Bible. Consider these verses from Deuteronomy that would have applied to the people of God. And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, blessings shall come. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, curses shall come. And the heavens over your head shall be bronze, and the earth under you shall be iron. And the Lord will make the rain of your land powder. From heaven dust shall come down on you until you are destroyed. A drought. And like a child who says to his father, you promised Elijah is saying to God in prayer, you promised, and he announces that the drought is coming even before it comes because he knows God's word is as sure as his, as his character. Which means that Elijah is not an example of deciding what we want and praying in faith, really strong faith that God will bring it, as if we can force God's hand with belief. He's an example of discerning what the Lord wants and wanting that with him in prayer. He knew the word of God. And this is why James says the prayer of a righteous person has great power in its working. For righteousness is not a man with an accumulation of righteous deeds, but a trust, a deep trust in the righteousness and the promises of God. To believe his promises, to declare them before they even happen and live like they are true. I know it's crazy, but remember you're a child of the king. So what has God promised to do for you and for me that we can bank on, that we can say as true as done? 
He has not promised to raise you up when you're homebound, when you're bedridden. The whole of the testimony of Scripture would say so, although he could. But he has promised to raise every Christian from the grave. And like Elijah, we can say humbly and boldly that he will. Here's a promise from Scripture that you can hold on to from the lips of Jesus. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your good word. We thank you for your word, which is even at times difficult to understand. And we are willing to admit when we aren't precisely sure what we're looking at. And that's okay. Father, we thank you for what we know, that you at times heal, and that you ultimately will heal all of your children. For it's by Christ's wounds that we are healed. And we sure are thankful that he prayed, not my will, but yours be done. Help us to do the same. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.